Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast. A podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today. I'm Whitney Lowe. And I'm Till Luca. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Thinking, Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, I'm Till Luca. When I was looking for a publisher for a book I wanted to write, I was fortunate to have ended up with two offers, one from a large international media conglomerate and the other from Handspring, a small publisher in Scotland run by four great people who love great books and who love our field. To this day, I'm glad I chose to go with Handspring as not only did they help me make the books I wanted to share, the Advanced Myofascial Techniques series, but their catalog has emerged as one of the leading collections of professional level books written especially for body workers, movement teachers, and all professionals who use movement or touch to help patients achieve wellness. Hi, and I'm Whitney Lowe, and Handspring's Move to Learn webinars are free 45-minute broadcasts featuring their authors, including one with you, Till. So head on over to their website at handspringpublishing.com to check those out. And be sure to use the code TTP at checkout for a discount. Thanks again so much, Handspring. All right, sir. Here we are once again uh, recording this just after mm -hmm. the new year. Mm -hmm. And... Um, been an interesting uh, start to the new year, certainly for you guys out there in Colorado. Very challenging time there. So uh, glad to right hear that you're safe and sound after the we're wildfire safe and disaster. Sound. Yeah, there. the wildflower just on December 30th was right here, and the count is still being tallied. It looks like almost a thousand homes burned. Wow, Man. within a mile, some of them within a yeah. mile of our place. So it was quite. It was a big deal. Yeah, quite a shock. And we, I mean, what a thing, Whitney. I mean, there's so many fires and so many. Uh, people that have been affected by this, but to have it come that close and to have gone through the evacuation process of saying, okay, we're saying goodbye to our house. Yeah. But then to wake up the next day, surreally and be back still in our house, you know, back there and everything's still in our uh, little sphere normal again, but to know just over the ridge, there's people that have lost everything. Yeah. Yeah. It, it happens so quickly and it really, it, it's, um, one of those things that people reflect on a great deal of, of recognizing what's what's valuable and what's when you have to make that decision in a split second. You know, we've had to do that before too with fire evacuations. What are you going to try to save in just a few minutes? It really makes you think about a lot of things. Yeah, of course. The first thing I went for was my box set of thinking practitioner recordings. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Yeah, because that is irreplaceable. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. So no, it was a powerful process going through that. So, okay, letting it go. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, well we're glad you're here. here. We're glad you're safe and everything. So uh, we're going to start off the new year right. Um, Thank you. Thank yeah. You, yeah. How are you doing? Doing all right. Um, we had a nice kind of relaxing uh, turnover to the year here and um, uh, ready to get started and get going on, on some new adventures this year. So um, that's where we are. Being, yeah. Looking forward to being part of those and hearing about those as they come, come forth. Yeah. All righty. Well, what are we talking about today? Let's talk about ribs, rib cages, rib issues, oh. and hands-on work. Okay. That's something that's, interesting we haven't delved into yet here. So that no, sounds that's exciting. A, yeah. It's a topic that a lot of soft tissue therapists don't spend a lot of time thinking about, or maybe don't even have a lot of training in, but it is, uh, it is one of my favorite topics, partly because it's the most recent uh, full training we've recorded. And it's also a, the subject of a training coming up. And I'll say some more about that toward the end coming up, uh, starting in the beginning of February. But it's, uh, it's remarkable to get 
into the mindset of working with the rib and rib cage. And it's, um, there's just so much I have to say about it. I'm looking forward to talking to you about it. Where do you want to start? Well, I'm curious. I want to touch base with, first of all, with something that you just said a moment ago, yeah. because this, this was called to my attention, both as I was doing some preparation for this episode and also just thinking through, you know, training processes in our field and other fields, um, why it is that we don't talk about the ribs a whole lot. We don't hear a whole lot about them. There's not a lot of stuff um, in PubMed, you know, that I, when I was went digging around looking for some right. things, interesting stuff, I didn't see a whole lot of things in there. No, there's not. Um, and uh, you don't hear about uh, people focusing on rib cage issues a great deal in many of the, the training programs that are around in our field and also in many other um, fields as well. You know, I found mm -hmm. the same thing. A couple of the articles that I was looking at were saying like, you know, there's, this is an area that doesn't get a lot of attention in medical practice, for example. And I thought, right. you know, it's kind of odd. It's interesting. This is the housing for our vital internal organs. Our most vital organs. Yeah. That's right. I wonder yeah. if it's because at least for the soft tissue perspective, if it's because they're bones mm -hmm. and their joints don't move a lot, we usually think, and you know, maybe I'm going to get into how they move, but yeah. There, we think of it as a bone and we think of ourselves as soft tissue people. And uh, I'm also thinking that when they're broken, there's not a lot, unless they're really fractured, there's not a lot that's done for them in a medical sense other than yeah. trying to keep someone comfortable and immobile enough to let them heal. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So. Pretty trouble free, except when they're not, because when they're not, then you hurt or, that's right. you got, or some super important functions like breathing are impaired. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. I broke a rib a couple of years ago on a snowboarding accident and uh, man, coughing, sneezing, laughing for about six weeks was not fun. Um, not good. Know, it was, yeah, it was not fun. So I, I know, know you were a shredder. I wasn't. That's why I broke my rib. <laughs> <laughs> no, I used to like when I was young, I used to skateboard all the time and thought, well, you know, I'm going to try yeah, hop on doing the thing. snowboarding thing because it looks like it would be a good transition of, of motor skills. And um, I, you know, yeah. I've, I've gone a couple times with it and I have a lot of fun doing it. It's, it's, I don't go enough to get good at it, but, uh, I just took a spill one time and, and fell down and my oh. elbow was tucked right into my torso. So it just, you know, it slammed it in there, all my body weight and then broke my rib and, and, uh, Oh boy. Yeah. So it took about six weeks. You said to feel, yeah, it did. Yeah. Something yeah. like normal. It did. Well, so. you know how a snowboarder introduces himself to you, don't you? Oh boy, I don't know. I'm ready to hear that though. <clears throat> Sorry, dude. <laughs> right. That's not it. Yeah. Sorry, no, that's a skier joke. I'm a skier, so we tell yeah. snowboarding jokes, of course. But uh no, snowboarding's pretty great. And it's it's also easier on the knees than skiing. Although yeah. higher incidence of neck injuries and snowboarders. Yeah. So. Yeah. But so yeah, I was trying to like evaluate which of those kinds of injuries would I be willing to sustain that might keep me away from doing work and stuff like that. And I thought, well, do I want to like wrench my knees and torque my MCL and do that on skis? Or do I want to uh, just take a spill and hit my upper body with, you know, snowboarding? And well, so, you know, I did a little bit of both, you know, and yep. uh, they're both fun. We so, take our risks. We pay the price, but then yeah. Yeah, so ribs, tell us about, maybe tell us about some rib anatomy. Yeah. So let's, we'll let's start our exploration at the base level here. And we'll talk a little bit about structure first, and then we'll get into some things about, you know, function and dysfunction challenges, problems, what we think we can do with this. So just mm -hmm. as a reminder, I'm sure you all touched base on this in your entry level training, but just as a reminder is what we're talking about here, we have 12 pairs of ribs, you know, one, sorry uh, to interrupt already. All right. We should mention, we should mention the handout. 
Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Because we're going to put an outline of this in yeah, your handout. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you tell tell us about that? So. Oh, just uh, we're going to put it on our site. So wherever you found this, we'll try to put the URL for the handout in there. Just go get it. Okay, got some more good details, and and yeah, at the end maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what's yeah. in there and, and some of the things that, that we'll yeah. get into. So thank you for reminding me of that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So uh, twelve pairs of ribs, um, uh, half on each side, and we have they're divided oftentimes into three categories the first being called true ribs and these are going to be mostly the upper ones that have a connection directly with the sternum so this is generally ribs one through seven hmm. and you can if you kind of remember your anatomy pictures that the you know rib goes all the way around from the uh, vertebral connection directly into the sternum on those first seven ribs so a little con- uh, a little bit different sometimes with that first rib because it can have some other um, fibrous connections in there, especially with some of the anatomical variations that uh, we have talked about before. And we'll get into a, again here. And then but your these, next, this is really what you just said is so important to working with them that they connect both in back and they go around all the way to the front. Yeah. Key concept. Yeah. And forget. we'll talk about that some in, in some of the other functional explanations here a bit too. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, down below that, their next three are sometimes called false ribs, uh, which means they're not directly articulating with the sternum. But if you remember, they kind of have fibrous connections that blend up into that uh, larger bundle of connective tissue where rib seven comes over and attaches with the sternum. And then the last two are. Yeah, wait a minute. So wait, why they're false? They're, they're false ribs. They're like pretending to be ribs, we say, because. They don't articulate directly with the sternum. Yeah. And they, you said, you said connective tissue. That's interesting because it's often taught as cartilage, isn't it? Yeah. And I think I meant to say cartilage, uh, but uh, can we cartilage say connective, connective tissue? To, yeah. Well, it's I think one we of said those. That. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but cool. th- for clarification, it's good to say cartilage because there are conditions that are named and described in relation to the cartilage um, dysfunctions of those connections. So that's an important clarification. That's so, right. Yeah. Yeah cartilage connections. And then our uh, last two are the two floating ribs that do not have connections with the uh, sternum. So they're just um, out there in space. I ran across an interesting little um, uh, tidbit trivia around this. You may have heard this, but uh, there is our, as, as in many things, there are um, anatomical variations unique to certain uh, demographic groups and um, this red uh, state, blue state variations in ribs. Yes. Something like that. Yep. Okay. Uh, actually not demographic, but um, what am I trying to say? Just, um, I know what you mean. Exactly. Geogra- demographics. Yeah. I was yeah, just giving you locally thing uh, oriented things, but yes. uh, in Japanese people, there's a higher incidence of the 10th rib being a floating rib. I believe huh. interesting. You're not. Yeah. Never heard that longer before. lumbar section, essentially. That's yeah. really interesting. Yeah. So, Kind of fascinating there. Um, Back up to the first rib for just a second. We did mention that that, uh, we talked about this in our episode on thoracic outlet syndrome, the presence of something called a cervical rib. And that is a sort of faulty um, extension of the transverse process of C7 that will curve around and connect in, have fibrous connections in with where the first rib is connecting in toward the sternum. So sometimes that uh, is present in about uh, half of a percent of the population we mm-hmm. uh, have found, or that's sort of been the, the stats that have been, that I've come across a couple of times in terms of the uh, predominance yeah. of that cervical rib. I've heard that too. Yeah. And, uh, and I've heard sim- not always symptomatic, two to three times more likely to be symptomatic. 
So, but yeah, more symptomatic than people that don't have them, but not yeah. inevitably symptomatic either. Yeah. And, and an important distinction about that is also remembering, you know, if you're working on somebody's scaling muscles and you feel something really hard right down there, um, it don't might try not to be, rub it out. It might not be a hypertonic tight muscle. It might be there a cervical go. rib in there. So, nice. um, yeah, slightly greater predominance in females with that cervical rib also. That's, I did not know that. Yeah. So in kind of interesting little thing there. So back to the floating ribs, I'm remembering a little bit of trivia from the structural integration legacy. And I can't remember exactly what question she was asked, but Ida Rolf, again, the founder of that tradition was asked at some point, like either what was her favorite technique or what was her favorite part of the body? Or if she could only do one thing, what would it be? Maybe it was like, if she could only take one technique to a desert Island, what would she take? You know, <laughs> but it was, uh, her answer was the 12th rib. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Out of her whole uh, repertory of things, it was the 12th rib. She says the one. And explanations of why? Any well, ideas, oh, theories, oh, there's been, of why? there have been numerous, uh, what long-winded discussions about why she might've said that and what she meant. She left it as a kind of riddle, I think, mm -hmm. but it's, it is really key. It's the, where the upper body meets the lower body. Yeah. Yep. in a lot of different ways. It's the back of the diaphragm, the diaphragm being such an important central structure. Mm -hmm. And when it's, uh, when it's not open, neither is much else really you yeah. can say. When things don't uh, move or expand around that place, not, not much else does too. Those are just maybe some quick off the top of my head factors she might've been thinking about, but there might've been a whole lot more too. Yeah, right. So um, yeah, fascinating fascinating stuff in there. And uh, so those are the, the main bones of the rib cage. And then of course, to tie those things together, especially um, on the, on the posterior aspect where the ribs are joining with the vertebral spine, yeah. there is a very intricate webbing of ligaments, very short, very small ligaments in there. Um, but I came across this. I had no idea about the number of this. There's roughly somewhere in the neighborhood of 108 costovertebral ligaments in the thoracic spine. So wow. uh, lots of little connections there between, you know, portions of vertebral bodies and the ribs to hold them in position there. So, and those are just the ones that have names probably because, yeah. uh, you know, you've, if you've done a dissection or you've, uh, you know, done some cooking with, um, meat or you've seen the anatomical pictures. Yeah. That whole region there where the ribs meet the spine is so fibrous and so, bound yeah. in with ligaments, like you said, but also lots of little muscular and fascial structures. Yeah. yeah. And a very important consideration for us to remember is that that means lots of um, richly innervated soft tissues in there that might be irritated and cause for um, some of the pain sensations people may be feeling. So um, I yeah. think a, a number of things there to be, to be thinking about with all those little, little bitty guys in there. So, uh, and we got a bunch of uh, muscles connecting along there too, to the rib cage, especially those that are um, helping to act on the spine, the paravertebral muscles. You mentioned the diaphragm earlier. Uh, what else we've got in there? Some uh, other muscles, quadratus lumborum, you talked about the 12th rib and its importance. And then, yeah, also, yeah. those, I mean, some of those ones that I listed there in the outline were things that I was brainstorming, what connects the rib out into the appendices because mm -hmm. there's certainly the things that connect ribs to other ribs like intercostals yeah but uh we often don't think of like you said paravertebral but like the iliocostalis part of the erector group that's a rib muscle it's yeah right in its name really and it does 
a lot with ribs mm-hmm. or latissimus, or like you said, QL. Yeah. Is a rib muscle. Yeah. Any of those spinal muscles, you know, ones that we don't um, think about a lot, you know, serratus posterior superior, you know, for example, mm-hmm. you know, other ones that are um, connecting in with those um, bodies of the ribs and, or also near the, the joints themselves and may, certainly be playing a part in, in different types of, of pain complaints people may be having there. So some, some very important things to be thinking about. And you also mentioned one in here too, that um, I think a lot of people don't think about this as a rib oriented muscle, even though it fans out across the ribs and it's a major appendicular muscle and that's serratus anterior. Yeah. Really yeah. critical player then it's, it's spanning across a broad range of the whole rib cage, the lateral rib cage. Well, and then pectoralis major in front, similar spans, yeah. you know, spans and connect and minor as well. Now it's for those of us who think in muscle terms that these names mean something, but if you don't think in muscle terms, it's a shorthand is just to think there's lots of big soft tissue structures that fan out like with said onto the ribs and connect them either to the axial uh, spine or out in the case of some of those out into the limbs as well with the upper girdle in particular for the upper ribs being something to think about as you're starting to aim for the ribs themselves. I mean, a progression in terms of a treatment model might or maybe should include some sort of upper girdle work as well, Mm -hmm. because the shoulder girdle is wrapped around the upper rib cage in such a way that it's impossible to separate them. So really thinking about upper ribs means thinking about pectoralis in front, you know, uh, and then up into the head and neck, there's scalenes, rib yeah. muscles, like you said, on the upper uh, rib or two, mm-hmm. that are really, the real upper ribs are really kind of the base of the neck. And you know, yeah. the, you know, the base of those guy wires of the scalenes that are helping stabilize and mobilize the neck yeah. as well. Yeah, it's important to remember, so, you know, muscles like the scalenes, which we think about so often being neck muscles and acting on the neck, but they are really critical for inspiration and lifting the rib cage up. And that's, that's a big factor with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I'm biting my tongue a little bit because it's a rabbit hole, but it's, you know, the costal pleural ligaments, the little ligaments right up there at the top of the pleural dome that anchor, essentially anchor the top of the lungs mm-hmm. to the ribs and to the vertebrae are the other end of what the diaphragm pulls on diaphragm yeah. contracts and pulls downward. The mm-hmm. ribs are, sorry, the lungs are anchored up to the upper ribs yeah. such that they get stretched between the downward descending diaphragm and that anchor up at the top, mm-hmm. essentially the base of the neck. Yeah. So that's what pulls air in mm-hmm. those anchorings up there. Yeah. It's a fascinating process. Yeah. Fascinating process. When we, and again, something I think we just don't tend to delve into as much in, in our world. So it's great to, to, to take a deeper, deeper look into this. So you, we we're starting give, to uh, go ahead. Sorry, let me give honorable mention to the thoracolumbar fascia. Oh, yes. And mm-hmm. pectoralis fascia, cervical fascia, brachial fascia, pleural fascia. It's like the credits rolling by as we did all the names involved yes, in no. the rib production. You know. But sure, there, certainly there's fascial layers to that We're very involved with rib mobility and rib sensitivity, and rib structure. Yeah. And as we get into some of those tissues, we, we start looking to a little bit more closely at function in terms of what is the rib cage's primary role and what is it doing there. So, of course, it makes sense that that's a primary um, factor in protecting the internal thoracic uh, organs, mm-hmm. some of our most yeah. vital organs, lungs, heart, everything that are up in the upper thoracic region in there. Um, and they're also, as you mentioned too here, assisting a great deal in that whole process of respiration. So they are providing um, 
both structure and also some capability for expansion and contraction of, of the lungs during the respiration process. Did I say that? Did I say assistance in respiration? Was that me? I think so. Yeah. Well, if I had we're to make talking it about up. the scalenes and, and you were talking about the, okay, the sure, lungs true. and all that kind of stuff. So no, I'm yeah. looking and I'm seeing that in our outline. Um, I didn't know that was me, but if I had to riff on that a little bit, I would say the ribs uh, are springs too. We load them on yeah. the inhale. Mm-hmm. They expand a little bit. Like if you imagine a C coming farther apart. And then when you let the air out, the ribs return to the original shape. So we're using the ribs in their springing kind of you know, kinetic loading aspect as well for respiration. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Yeah. So uh, so tell, tell me some more about movement. You've got some other things in here about some uh-huh. movement things. Tell it's, me a little bit about that. It's just so important. And it was a revelation for me to think about ribs moving in three dimensions. And... Uh, you know, the, if you mentioned the Ming attached in the back and in the front, so it's sternum or costal arch in front and spine and back. So I, let's actually, let's do this with, like if you just take an in-breath and lift your arms above your head, kind of like Diane Matkowski would when she's <laughs> starting her conversation with you. Yeah, and then bring them down. If you just do that again, bring your arms up and up over your head, your ribs are basically moving upwards with your arms. They're being pulled outward and upward. Uh-huh. And that, yeah. that motion is called, as you may know, bucket handle motion, where because they're attached in back and in front, they swing outward from the middle, like a bucket handle, like two bucket handles. Yeah. Okay. So let me, let me uh, kind of clarify it again. So when sure. you're saying they're swinging outward, meaning the whole rib cage is curving around toward the front as you do that. Is that, is that what you're saying? Uh, no, thanks. Attached back and front. Yeah. One rib, let's say. And as it, as you lift your arm, it'll swing laterally. The uh-huh. say the mid part of that handle, the mid part of the rib will swing laterally mm-hmm. while those fixed points are relatively immobile. So it's like lifting the handle up on a bucket. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That, of course, in two sides, yeah. and then we have all the way up and down. So you got a whole bunch of buckets yeah. going in both directions. Yeah. So that's just one dimension too. The other dimension uh, that's talked about often is pump handle because it's kind of like an up and down motion. And that's the tendency of your sternum, let's say, or the front side of the rib cage to drop and rise as you breathe. Try that a little bit like exhale and let your sternum drop a lot as you can just kind of curve over in your chair, whether you're listening to the podcast seated or standing, you can just kind of curl forward. And then if you take a big in-breath and let your sternum come up, go ahead and do that, everybody. Your ribs are basically lifting in the front more than they are in the back. Mm-hmm. So just do that a couple of times and feel that. That's like the pump handle motion of the ribs, the front side, the sternum going upwards and downwards in space. With the so yeah. if if our you know if we're moving in that direction, um, and you know you've got this curved bone going from the spine back around to the sternum, uh-huh. is the entire curved bone moving forward, or is that curve opening up and expanding as the sternum? rises and falls well that because you're inhaling you're also expanding the curve mm-hmm. you're also like i said it's like a c-shaped uh, bucket handle you're actually flattening the c as you inhale and yeah. lift in front as well so all these are going on at once absolutely so this seems like one of the places in the body where we have something that's pretty unusual which is bones bending bones as part bending. of their natural activity that's right um, so you know the flexibility of those bones to be able to do that seems like it's, it's pretty crucial part of normal so function crucial, there. So crucial. And then that, yeah. you talked about floating ribs. You could think about them all floating in some ways. They're all suspended between various soft tissues and structures to allow all these movements. 
And there's, there's one more dimension too, which is like, if you just put your hands on the side of your rib cage, somewhere above your waist on your thorax, and then twist from side to side. So you're moving now in the horizontal plane, that's caliper motion of the ribs so that on the, the side that you're turning towards, like say you're turning towards the right, your right ribs are opening in the front away from the spine. Mm -hmm. Your left ribs are closing toward the spine. And then you reverse it the other way, you twist the other way. That's the other possibility where the right side, right ribs are closing in the front, left side are opening in the front. So that movement on the horizontal plane is like a caliper motion. Or like if you just arch your back and look upwards, that's all the ribs calipering open in front. Or if you curl forward and hunch like you're working too late on your computer, all the ribs caliper forwards and close in front. Yeah. So yeah. that's the horizontal plane movements. And uh, we tend to, we can just imagine now that those rib motions are really important to posture and to support and to function and to balance, certainly in, in standing, but definitely in seated positions as well. So they're relevant to uh, all this time we spend on these devices now you know, and what we do there and how the ribs are engaged or not engaged, how they're moving or not moving as we're doing these things. Yeah. And as you mentioned to a moment ago about, you know, the different motions and the directions that we're moving to just another um, point that I want to call attention to when we think about motion through the spine, mm. that, uh, that there's a, some significant differences in terms of what we should be seeing of where spinal motion occurs. So for example, Throughout the entire spine, the majority of flexion and extension movements are occurring in the lumbar spine, mm. whereas the majority of our rotational movements are happening in the thoracic spine. So, you know, you get some of during that flexion and extension, you'll get a little bit of that, uh, as you mentioned, sort of shrinking down and expanding of, of yes. the thoracic rib cage. But if, if the thoracic spine flexed and extended as much as the lumbar spine does, then it would be difficult because your ribs would collapse in on each other. So, yeah. well, um, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. And the, yeah, the thoracic spine flex and extends less because of the ribs, because it exactly. has a rib yeah. cage around it. It's yeah. a fun mental exercise though, to imagine that your thoracic spine could flex and expand that much yeah. that you could actually, you'd have to uh, grow your sternum somehow. Yeah. yeah. Your sternum would have to get longer in front, but that's most of us could use that. Mm -hmm. Most of us could use a little bit of that imagination. Yeah. So it's uh, no, that's a good point. Though. Yeah. And remembering too, that, you know, despite the fact that we think of ourselves turning our torso and, and, you know, turning your back, you know, the majority of that rotational mm -hmm. movement is occurring in the thoracic region where the rib cage is and not in the lumbar spine. Yes. So, uh, thank you. Yep. Yeah. So the twisting happens in the thoracics. Yeah. And of course, if you're interested in the sort of anatomical, you know, minutia of that, you know, that's a fascinating aspect of looking at the angular orientation of the facet joints of the spine that allows that because in the spinal region, they're, they're more vertical, allowing for sagittal plane movement. And as you move up the spine through the thoracic region, they start to slant more diagonally, allowing a lot more of that rotational movement. So that's, that's a fascinating aspect of how those facet joints are associated too. I love that stuff. And then, yeah. and then the fact that the costal vertebral joints, the ways that the ribs are knit in with all 108 thoracic costal vertebral ligaments there, that really determines movement too. That re could restrict or allow movement yeah. in the thoracic spine, the ways the ribs relate to it. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it, it and maybe I'm going to put this in the handout. There are some fun techniques of just using the entire rib or half of the rib cage, the whole rack of ribs on one side to move it against the spine, to get that mobilization between the spine 
and the ribs can be a remarkable epiphany to feel movement there and to be able to breathe there. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, well, what else hey, we I got, got a, going here? Well, you I got, got a question for you there. Okay. Do you think ribs go out? Where do you stand on that question? You know, I ponder this often because, yeah. um, you know, when you look at them being so tightly bound by with all these little ligaments in there, it seems like, well, that's a pretty firm connection. But at the same time, the articulation from a bony standpoint is really weak. It's just two, you know, sort of vertical surfaces sitting against each other. That so shallow depression, if shallow any, depression, no, no, no yeah. real socket. Yeah. Yeah. So it looks like the kind of thing that, that could do that. So the thing that I find puzzling and interesting is that you know, this particular type of problem doesn't get a lot of attention in many different of the uh, sort of medical fields that of people that would be working with this kind of thing. Uh -huh. um, you know, certain groups, I think, will focus on this a whole lot more. For example, you know, chiropractors, osteopaths, manipulative therapists, I think, yes. focus a lot more attention on this than some of the traditional medical practitioners. Um, the idea that a rib would be out of place or out uh, yeah. subluxed or something like that, yeah. and that could be the cause of some pain. Uh -huh. Yeah. So I certainly think that it, um, it does happen um, and it, it can happen in certain instances. Now, one of the other things that I found fascinating in, in looking up some stuff about you know, costovertebral dysfunctions yeah. is that a lot of times when they are actually identified by in traditional medical western medical like practice a radiograph or something or x-ray yeah, or something um, yeah okay or or a lot of times this there's a paper that had um, about five different case studies of cost over dysfunction and they basically in in most of those cases were making their determination based on um, localized paraspinal muscle spasm, exquisite tenderness at that particular junction of the rib um, without necessarily finding anything on the diagnostic uh, studies. But they treated it with nerve blocks. And then the person got better in most cases after a relatively short period of time, just with the nerve block alone, which means, mm -hmm. okay, so they didn't push something back in that might have oh, been out. But there was significant rib head pain associated with some type of either malalignment or subluxation where it was partially out and then went back in or, you know, went out and came back in quickly. Okay, or, if I follow in yeah. these case studies, they were seeing people with painful rib heads right up there next to the spine. Yeah. And there was a shape difference. Was there a topographical difference? Yeah. Uh, okay. So there's but, some sort of bump or something there. Yep. They go, yeah, traditionally, you know, in some cases people describe that as a rib being out. Yeah. There's a bump there you can feel. And they treated it not with pushing the rib back in, in quotes, but by blocking the nerve, blocking the sensation and people got better. Yeah. Cool. Now, those are just a couple of case studies that were reported um, in, in the literature. And, you know, I would be willing to bet that, you know, if you were a, um, a health professional that focused on this kind of stuff, you would probably find those a lot more frequently. So, uh -huh. um, you know, for example, in I, I just, my sense is just from personal experience that I, I tend to see this happen a lot more in the chiropractic field, that there are a lot more um, focused on looking for that as a problem when people have those kinds of symptoms and mm -hmm. then, you know, look at this is the way that we're going to treat it is by some type of forced manipulative movement of the rib to put it back in position. Yeah. And oftentimes it really works well. Okay. It's the question I get asked, probably the single biggest question I get asked in the rib training is okay. Okay. So what do I do for a rib that's out? 
Yeah. That question inevitably comes up and often more than once. And what do you say? I'm curious what your perspective uh, is on that. I say, I, I dodge it a little bit because it's a controversial idea. In fact, like you said, it's really common and accepted as fact in some fields. And then in other fields like emergency medicine, they say that's not even a thing or if it is, it's really rare. So it's, it's, you know, there's a big controversy about the accuracy of that terminology. Yeah. And so what I say in response to that question, how do you put a, what do you do with a rib that's out? I say, I don't use that map. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't debate that that's a useful map in some circumstances or some approaches, but in my map, I'm thinking about movement more than position anyway. Yeah. And there's, you know, you'll, sometimes you'll feel a bump there. So the, the skeptics say that's maybe sprained ligaments with some swelling or hardening. The uh, believers say you're feeling the rib out of misalignment and that's the cause of the pain. I just say, I'm feeling for movement. I'm feeling for adaptability. Mm-hmm. And I'm also, so that's, I'm using my touch is to restore movement, but I'm also using my touch to restore or normalize, you could say the sensation to restore normal sensation or normalize sensitivity. So yeah. if something's painful, there's a lot we can do with our touch to help ease that sensitivity, that protective response that pain is. And if it's immobile and in conjunction with that, then there's a lot we can do to help encourage movement, help the body be willing to move more. Yeah. And I think it's an important thing, a, a reminder to us in this sense, instance in particular, but also in, in a number of other instances too, you don't really know if a person has a rib that's out just by palpation and some of those other clinical signs and symptoms, because what might appear to be the bump in the place where the rib might potentially be out could be an anatomical anomaly of bone shape. And it Mm -hmm. just happens to be enlarged and there's tender soft tissues around there. So until you do a high-tech diagnostic study and see a distance between the articulating surfaces that indicate that something is out of place, you don't know that for sure. And then once that diagnostic study gets done, it's not your job to do something about it anyway. Out of scope, you're saying for most soft tissue therapists. And I I would go even further. I would say, even if we did that study and saw differences in the joint spaces, there's still a debate about whether that's pathological or not. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's still using a positional map Mm -hmm. on something that may be a sensation issue Yeah, or a mobility issue. Yeah. Anyway, that's another, that's another topic. Yeah. But you, you try to keep the attention focused on the client's experience and dealing with things from, you know, movement enhancement and, and, you know, getting mobility restored to to functional levels. The client's experience in terms of sensation in particular, and then, and then the therapist's experience in terms of the mobility we feel. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the, those are the goals of my approach is to increase options for movement and refine proprioception. Yeah. Right. It's not to get all the ribs in a straight row necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unless it so, serves that other purpose. Yeah. So while we're sort of talking about those things, tell me a little bit more about, you know, what other things might cause uh-huh. some of these ribs to, you know, lose their mobility or you know, have yeah. painful problems, things like that. What else are we looking at? There's the, possible the, the big groups. I mean, the big groupings of what causes ribs to be troublesome would be a loss in soft tissue adaptability. Like things get sprained and scarred and denser, you could say, or the, maybe the muscular tension or, so it's a loss of soft tissue adaptability or nervous system sensitization and the protection that comes with that. Like if a rib is sensitive, 
then that cycles into that kind of protective movement pattern, which is that vicious circle of lack of mobility, greater sensitivity, and then over time tissue changes perhaps, or movement pattern changes that are harder to yeah. get out of. Mm-hmm. So that's the cycle, but the things that can set that up, uh, I, I pulled this list out of my slideshow and I see the first one I put on there is unnatural sleep position. I'm giving the slideshows. I'm traveling around talking to people. So that's probably the first time I mind getting off the plane and going to teach their right. class. Yeah. I'm like going, okay, unnatural sleep positions. Yeah. Number one, uh, coughing, sneezing, vomiting. You can mm-hmm. break a rib coughing. Yeah. It's and interesting. A lot, the, huh? mm-hmm, yeah. a lot of the case studies out now about, we don't have a lot of data yet on COVID if, you know, relationships to rib pain. There's a lot of reports of that but a lot of them do seem to be tied to coughing. You know, people can cough a lot with COVID sometimes, and that can be, uh, you know, it can strain the soft tissues, strain the different joints, sensitize them over time. Yeah. Pregnancy. Yeah. Pregnancy is a big rib event. Mm-hmm. Life of a rib pregnancy figures large. Uh, postural habit, just the way we're used to sitting, standing, moving, will change the adaptability or sensitivity of a rib. Mm-hmm. Do you think it changes rib position? Like the forward slumped, you know, upper thoracic slumped oh. postural position that, that the ribs adapt to that or, or change position in relation to that? I, I don't mean to be too fussy about this, but I think posture is position. It, that's what defines posture is position. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it would, a, a slumped posture would be a change in rib position. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that's quite what you're asking. I think you were saying, um, is that persistent? perhaps. Yeah. Or does that change the joint relationships or something? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think it does that too. I mean, we, we get used to the positions that we're in a lot, both uh, our tissue gets used to it and our brain gets used to it and our desk setup gets used to it in all kinds of ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there's, I mean, then, then there's the question of plasticity and how much is that changeable, all those kind of things. But anyway, you were going to say, yeah, just, I, I, I agree with you there that it seems like anytime when you're, you're, changing those positions for long periods of time. Yeah. That's the functional position that somebody's in. So yeah, it's changing uh-huh. some things. And, but like you said, the, the other big question is how, how plastic or, you know, solid or, or lingering is that? That's yeah. That's why I put habit in there too. I said postural habit, not just posture, which is thought of to be like a fixed thing that maybe you can improve through working on it, but mm-hmm. habit, the ways we do things, the functional yeah. side of it as well being a big piece of what shapes us and the shapes we take yeah. often as much habit as uh, structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other thing on the list, uh, trauma, falls, injuries, surgeries, things that physically traumatize or injure the ribs and their surrounding soft tissues or can definitely cause them to be sensitive over time. Yeah. And then our old friends, stress, inactivity, and disease mm-hmm. will all yep. show up as rib pain or rib dysfunction of various sorts. Yeah. So we'll talk about a few more of these um, potential pathological problems here um, that people have that are associated with, with ribs and maybe also a little bit about what role we may play with some of them. So um, when we look at what causes the pain and pathology, some of the things that, that come to mind, you mm-hmm. mentioned here a couple of things. What's, what do we got to, on our list here? Of things well, the that- show, I mean, this, this is getting into the realm maybe of of um, yeah, pathological descriptions. Maybe there's some of what your clients say coming into what their complaints are that makes you think, let's do this work. And certainly breathing restrictions mm-hmm. is number one. 
it's just, you know, either it could be as dramatic as a shortness of breath, but you could, it could be just not seeing someone breathe much or difficulty taking a big breath when you ask them to. Yeah. I'm curious at what, if there's any, you know, research about this or what your thoughts are on it too, like a person who's um, not able to use their lungs to the full capacity that they did. Like for example, a smoker who's not um, probably expanding their lungs to the point that they could before they were smoking. If that maybe causes, you know, atrophy, loss of range of motion in the intercostal muscles or difficulty in, in ever getting to be able to expand that again. Well, you and many massage therapists being muscle people go, yeah, intercostals, me being a fascial structural guy says, you know, plural fascia, mm-hmm. the deep fascia around the rib cage, the, the wrappings around the intercostals, the bigger wrappers there. But yeah, all of those things probably change through habit yeah. and probably something like smoking or inactivity, things that make us breathe less or a, like your, uh, snowboarding story when you didn't breathe as much for six weeks it probably changed all those things too that took some time to either get used to and come back out of or not as time yeah goes on. right for sure mm-hmm. or then you know then it goes way you know the other extreme would be like uh, copd or something like that where there's or you know where there's a breathing a serious breathing pathology that yeah absolutely changes the physical quality of all those structures involved but then also our brain forgets or keeps it, protects us from movement ranges that are uncomfortable or threatening or weird. Yeah. Yeah. So what else we got in there? Joint, the rib joint or soft tissue strain sprain. That's mm-hmm. like one explanation for the rib out phenomena, just yeah. the soft tissue around there getting injured or sensitized. Uh, did we cover what you wanted to say about costovertebral dysfunction? Yeah, I think we kind of delved into that a good bit uh, earlier there. So we had that on our list of potential pathologies, but we talked about that a good bit with the whole rib out discussion. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, I think we've, we've touched on that there. And then costochondritis or TC syndrome, which is like the sensitivity of, or inflammation it's thought out to be of, of the joints or the junctures between the ribs and the sternum. Mm-hmm. And or the uh, sternal cartilage and the costal cartilage in the sternum, that yeah. zone in there, when it gets really sensitive to touch, it's called costochondritis. If it gets swollen and sensitive to touch, it's called Tietze syndrome. I was curious about that distinction because costochondritis by its name <clears throat> essentially implies inflammation and irritation of those cartilage uh, structures uh-huh. in there. And like, that's basically what's happening in the TT syndrome. So that seems like an, 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 a kind of an ambiguous distinction. There. Yeah. It's probably splitting hairs mm-hmm. that may or may not need to be split. Yeah. And the, the, uh, the, the thing we all ask is, okay, so what can we do about that? When we see a client with that kind of swelling or tenderness right around the sternum, and there's a lot we can do to ease the experience of that. We don't get in there and poke on it generally though. Mm-hmm. The, the, that does seem to be an inflammatory condition that is aggravated by direct work. There's work that's too direct. Yeah. So it's basically make sure someone's mobile and give it some time. Now, if it goes on for a longer time, then we get into the inflammation discussion about unresolved inflammation and how do we work with that? And there's some different things to try. Yeah. Yeah. But again, and always, I think there's, there's roles for us in settling down nervous system responses and enhancing overall movement things that don't necessarily have to mean that you go into the painful problem area and try to fix and and do something to it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't poke the bear. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Sing the bear lullaby. Don't poke it. That's right. Yeah. 
slipping rib syndrome, uh, that's same thing. It's an inflamed uh, either cartilage or or juncture with the bone and cartilage. Mm -hmm. But that is more around the costal arch, you could say, or the costal chondral junctures there where those imposter ribs, the false ribs come around and meet the cartilage. Yeah. In a couple of the, um, I think it was in that same paper, and we'll put a, no, a link to this paper in the show notes as well. It was this um, paper by uh, Arroyo, uh, Costovertebral Joint Dysfunction, Another Misdiagnosed Cause of Atypical Chest Pain. And one of the things that they were talking about in this um, paper is the frequency with which these conditions get misdiagnosed. Uh, oh. You know, thinking somebody's having a heart attack when they've got, you know, uh, rib juncture pain or that yeah. there's some other type of internal um, organ system problem in there, because that's what you look for first when you're uh, right. in that type of, of medical practice. You don't often think in terms of musculoskeletal disorders of, of the rib cage. So um, good thing uh, to remember that a lot of those things may be misdiagnosed as other type of problems. Yeah. And it's a great re reminder for us as musculoskeletal people to think, well, maybe it is a cardiac issue yep. too, or maybe it is pleurisy or pneumonia or flu or COVID or one of those things that can make the ribs feel painful too. Maybe it's not just their yeah. ligaments or something. Yeah, for sure. Going both ways. Yeah. So uh, yeah, well, we had that on our list also of looking for all those uh, possible things. And uh, you were going to speak a little on um, uh, osteoporosis. osteoporosis, bone Maybe density so. concerns, yeah. osteopenia. Uh, it's worth mentioning here as we start to think about working with ribs, they are not by the way, some of the most vulnerable bones to this condition they're not the most commonly injured or most mm -hmm. commonly in trouble. But if you're, uh, it's just good for all of us to know about the possibility of bone density issues when we're working with people. Mm -hmm. And uh, osteoporosis, just a couple of facts about it, affects about 3% of people in the US, both male and female. It's not just a female thing. The problem with it, from our point of view, is that it often doesn't have any signs until a bone breaks until someone actually, you know, uh, experiences the pain, they go in and say, oh, you got a broken bone. They don't even know they have a bone density issue. So it's the general rule of thumb is to get screened. If you have three out of five of these different signs, I'm going to list, and I'll put these in the show notes too. Three out of five of these signs, first sign, age over 65, second sign, Caucasian or Asian, third sign being female, fourth sign, low body weight, Fifth sign, family history of osteoporosis. If you have three out of five of those, then it's good to get screened, to go find out through uh, different sorts of tests if you are vulnerable to a bone density issue or if you have some already. And it's basically a continuum with osteopenia being some bone density effects and osteoporosis being greater bone density effects. And by the way, uh, my, my first fact I started out with about 3% of people, I think in certain populations like uh, as we get older, both men and women, but especially women, it's a lot more than that. It is so common to have a bone density um, diagnosis or label mm -hmm. that is almost not something to get too freaked out about. I mean, I'm not saying don't take it seriously because you should, but it's so common at some points in life that it's just part, seems to be part of aging as well. Yeah. But that means as, as hands-on therapists, we don't want to be just wailing away on everybody or pushing too hard, you know, mm -hmm. not just because of bone density, because that's not always necessary or not a great thing anyway. Yeah. Right. But even if someone comes to you and they say, yeah, I've got osteopenia or osteoporosis, you can still work with them. 
you're just not going to think you're not going to try to compress those ribs like that springy c-shape idea i mentioned you're going to be really gentle with that we had uh, in the in the videoing for that class i was lucky enough to have had, to have a model who had pretty advanced osteoporosis as my model for that class oh so great. Show, yeah, yeah yeah it was really great to have her there she was really kind to volunteer for that but it, it i got to show how to work with that kind of situation with yeah too. excellent so um while we're on that topic of working with things um mm -hmm. tell us a little bit about what's in the handout and maybe some other ideas you were going to share with us yeah we were going to put this mm -hmm, absolutely we're going to put this outline of our discussion here in the handout and then i'll also just put some uh of the interesting excerpts from the course manual for that course that's coming up some standalone techniques that you can just take and go work with it that work with those different motions of the ribs really because if there's one thing that i would give people it's really that idea that the ribs move in three dimensions and if you can help someone feel that with their breathing use your hands or your guided uh you know instructions to help someone feel movement like say feel the bucket handle or feel the front going up and down or to feel the twisting of the ribs that's going to do so much for people yeah it's also yeah and then from the other side you can use those motions to essentially strategize what uh places structures or certainly which movements might be involved in uh an issue someone presents you with yeah and almost reverse engineer from there too mm -hmm. i'll just i'll put some different techniques that do that into the handout and all right line. and then yeah. you had a reference that sounded pretty interesting i'll put that in there as well yeah as a matter of fact i had a couple in there that i was gonna there was a uh, that paper that um i mentioned that had the information about all those um cost over tebral ligaments and everything like that. It was a pretty interesting anatomic um, study in there. So um, mm -hmm. we'll put both of those in there as well. That reminds me of that study I sent you about lizard ribs. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, uh, that was, oh, it's God, just so, it was so fun just uh -huh. to read something that's so quirky and geeky and down way down the rabbit hole yeah. of, of uh, a study of lizard, lizard rib motion mm -hmm. and the, author's theory that their observations were suggesting that ribs evolved as a movement uh, structure rather than a respiratory structure mm. that as extensions of the spinous sorry the uh, uh, transverse processes of the vertebrae which is what ribs are embryologically yeah. they started the same projection of cells that eventually differentiate out into either ribs or transverse processes mm -hmm. that as an extension of the vertebrae that in a, especially in a quadruped, if you can imagine a lizard kind of side bending as it moves, the ribs were part of that ambulatory story or the walking story for ribs more than a breathing story. Interesting. So, yeah. There's lots of animals like fish that, that also have ribs, but mm -hmm. that don't use the ribs in the same way to breathe. Obviously, mm -hmm. ribs, uh, you know, fish don't breathe in that same way. Yeah, that's interesting. And then birds. Oh, yeah. hey, birds have mm -hmm. a weird one-way lung. Yeah. Yeah, whole air sac system and everything. That's I didn't yeah. even know about that until I read this study. Yeah. So rather than a tidal lung where you're taking air in and out, birds apparently, you tell us, have some sort of, of a circulatory system that's one way through their lungs. Yeah. I don't quite have a, a good, complete, thorough understanding of how that works, but we, we dealt with that a lot when, uh, especially with the smoke from fires, because the, huh. you know they can't get it out of their lungs very easily wow. because of that whole wow. process. But they don't have lungs. Uh, the way, the same way that we do, they have air sacs that are, yeah. um, you know, act differently uh, for them. So, um, yeah. yeah. And so their respirational, respiration movements are way different and their ribs are way different, yeah. but they got ribs anyway. Yeah. So do fish. So yeah. go figure. Maybe yeah. ribs are about that. movement. 
I think. Yeah. So be sure to check out that handout to look at all the other um, good stuff on there. Anything else you want to say um, about that around those? Oh yeah. No, I meant to give Larry, uh, my co-teacher, Larry Coley, a shout out because he and I worked really closely together to develop that material. That's going to be in the handout. And then in the rib chorus that's coming up, the principles class we're calling, it's part of the principal series where I get, I get myself permission to do a deep dive into the theory and principles behind the work on those Zoom lectures. And then you get access to all the recordings of the demonstrations that again, Larry and I put together and then my son Ansel filmed in a really great way. And then we get together in small groups and discuss and analyze and apply those as well. It's been a really rich cycle, the principal series that we've been doing since COVID began. And we're about to launch that here at the end of January, 2022, the beginning of February. You can jump at any point in there and be a part of that with us. We'd love, Great. You. love to that have you. Sounds exciting. Yeah, that yeah. sounds exciting. So, well, all right then. So we'll, we'll wrap the ribs um, for the day here. And uh, thank mm-hmm. you all for delving into that with us. And thank you again, sir, for your in-depth explorations there. That was some, some fascinating stuff to look into. So uh, we would also like to say uh, thank you to our sponsors and in particular Books of Discovery, who's been a part of massage therapy education for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks, e-textbooks, and digital resources. And in these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online-friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring the massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession. Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where Thinking Practitioner listeners can save 15% by entering Thinking at checkout. And we would not like to say thank you to all of our sponsors and to all of our listeners, to you in particular. Thanks for hanging out with us and I uh, hope you got some goodies from the show here. You can stop by our sites for the handout till mentioned to you earlier, uh, show notes, transcripts, and any other extras. Um, you can get links to that from my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can people find that from your site? That's advanced-trainings.com. If there are questions or things you'd like to hear us talk about, just email us at info at thethinkingpractitioner.com or look for us each on social media, just at our names. My name is Till Luca and yours? Uh, today, my name is Whitney Lowe um, and you can find me over there uh, that way as well. Don't forget, if you will, take a moment, a quick moment out to rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help other people find the show. And you can also, of course, hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts or wherever else you happen to listen please do share the word and tell a friend. And then remember also, if you're unable to find us in any of those locations, you can head over to your local forest. And if a tree falls and no one is around to hear it, you can still hear us in the background. Wow. Deep. Yes, indeed. I was listening. I was reading this interesting thing uh, in this book that I had read years ago and picked it up again. Great book that I would recommend um, if anybody's uh, interested in anything about acoustics. The uh, book's called This Is Your Brain on Music. Yeah. Um, really recommend this. Uh, anyway, he's talking about that that statement in there. If a tree falls in the forest and no one is around to hear it, will it make any noise? Because that's you know the 
pondering philosophical that's thing. a big one yeah here's the one that that very uh aphorism or question came up to me this morning when someone was talking about working on a client who didn't remember the improvement she had it's huh. like it made me think okay so if we worked on a client and they got better and no one remembered would it still make a difference yeah well, there is an answer to that question, actually, Tell about me. the tree what falling in the forest. Oh, about no, the tree? Okay. It does not make a sound because yeah. in order for sound to occur, there has to be a recipient of the movement of the airwaves. And so with that no is. recipient of that sound uh, around there, it won't, there isn't a, there isn't a sound. Sound so, is the receiver's yeah. experience, not just the vibrating air. That's right. Yeah. Nice. So thanks for vibrating some air with me today, Whitney. Enjoyed it thoroughly at various different frequencies here. So yes, indeed. So we'll do it again here in a couple of weeks. Thank you all for hanging out with us again, and we'll see you soon. Bye for now.